Hi, my name's Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way part-time pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the part-time pilot Audio Ground School Podcast. Hey, hey, welcome to the Part-Time Pilot Audio Ground School. Again, this is the podcast that goes through the Part-Time Pilot Online Ground School lessons. We put it in audio format to make studying and learning the private pilot content easier and more convenient for you. So in today's episode, this is episode number seven. We're going to be talking about transponders, and if we have time, we might get into the Global Positioning System, or GPS, and this is all part of Section 2 of the Online Ground School at Part-Time Pilot. Section 1 was just an introduction, which we covered in Episode 1. Section 2 is called Operation of Aircraft Systems. In the last episode last week, we covered Magnetic Compass. And today we're going to cover lesson nine of section two on transponders. And then, like I said, maybe we'll get into GPS. As always, if you want to follow along in the online ground school, we have the written lesson with examples, diagrams, mnemonic devices, visual aids, videos. And then at the end of the lesson, we have a quiz with FA written questions, as well as questions that I came up with myself to try and make you Think a little bit harder so that you understand the fundamentals of these concepts. And if you want to follow along on those lessons and take those quizzes and watch those videos and all that stuff, just go to parttimepilot.com and then in the menu, click on online ground school and you can sign up, get started. That also gives you access to our Facebook group community that is private to members of our online ground school. You also get access to our weekly live Q&A or and lessons. Sometimes I'll teach a lesson. Sometimes I'll just take questions and sometimes I'll do both. But that's every week we I send out a Zoom link and every Monday for an hour we do that to make sure everyone's questions get answered and I can show you guys how to do things live. All right. So if you want to do that, go to parttimepilot.com and let's get started on transponders. So transponder, sometimes called the 4096 or 4096 transponder, we'll tell you why it's called that. But they were another byproduct of World War II, like a lot of aviation. I mean, World War II was absolutely horrible in in many, many ways, but there was so much innovation that came out of aviation just because so much money, production, innovation, engineering was put into aviation because it was, you know, that really that first big war that used airplanes in combat. And so just there was so many things that were invented in aviation during World War II, and transponders were one of them. They were invented in order to identify friendly aircraft. So one aircraft could 
send a code or transpond to another aircraft and they could recognize that as a friendly. A transponder is sometimes called 4096 code transponder, like I said, because the code is a four-digit number. So your squat code is a four-digit number. And each number can be a zero, a one, a two, a three, a four, a five, a six, or a seven. So it can be zero through seven, can't be an eight, can't be a nine, and can't be double digits. So that's eight possible numbers. It could be zero through seven and four different digits. So that means there is a total of 4,096 possible combinations. So that's why they call it a 4096 transponder. Now the transponder sends position signals from your aircraft to any listening, either aircraft or air traffic control, ATC. Not all flight requires the use of a transponder and we'll get to what flight does require a transponder. It depends on the airspace or the vicinity to a specific airspace, but again, we'll get to that. And there are different modes of transponders that report additional information beyond just position information to ATC, and we'll get to that as well. A transponder unit is a standalone unit installed in the cockpit dashboard. Unless you have a glass cockpit, then it might be integrated into the glass cockpit system. It really depends on your aircraft. So if you're following along in the online ground school, you can see this transponder. It's one of the, the more generic, most common transponders found in general aviation training aircraft. So it's not super new or anything like that, but I wanted to find the most common one. But it's got everything labeled, all the buttons, all the switches, all the knobs, all the numbers labeled. So you know exactly what it is and what it does. So if you're in the online ground school, go check that out. If you're not, maybe pull up a picture of a transponder so you can kind of get an idea of what we're talking about. I'll try and talk to each of these buttons and their functionality a little bit and try to make paint that mental image for you. So, so in the top left, there's going to be usually in the top left, it could be anywhere else, but there's going to be an ident button. Now the ident, when you press it, it allows the pilot to identify easily and quickly to ATC. It should not be used unless directed to use it by ATC. What it does is ATC is watching this screen, this radar screen. They have all these little aircraft going around. And if they can't find you or they want to be able to easily spot your aircraft, they'll tell you to ident and your aircraft will enlarge on their screen and they'll be able to quickly find you. So don't do that because it might mess them up. It might distract them when they're in when they're doing something, you know, that is taking a lot of their attention and is critical to the safety of other aircraft. So only do it when instructed by ATC. Then you're going to have a VFR button and that's just a VFR shortcut, which switches your squat code to the VFR code of one, two, zero, zero. And then you're going to have buttons for numbers. You might, yours might be a, a knob that you can change each number, each of the four numbers on your squat code. But you'll have a zero button, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then you're going to have an enter button and that sets each digit and moves you to the next digit. So what you do is you'll hit enter and then maybe the first digit will start flashing. So you'll enter a, you know, whatever your the first digit or squat code is, you'll let's say it's a one, you press one, then you hit enter. It goes to the second digit, you press that number, hit enter again, and so forth. You do that four times until your squat code is sent, set. And then there's going to be, there might be a function button or a settings button, and that's just used for setup and configuration. Then you're going to have a knob and this is, all of these are going to have a knob and this is kind of going to be the on off or mode switch. So you'll have an off position on this knob, which powers off the unit. You'll probably have a standby 
location on this knob and that powers on the unit, but it does not broadcast. So you're not sending out any signals, but the, the unit is on and powered on. Then you'll have an on, an on switch, right? An on position. This turns on mode 3A operation. And that means that you're transmitting mode 3A. And then you'll have an ALT, which stands for altitude. And it turns on mode 3C, automatic altitude reporting. We'll get into those modes and your transponder may have additional modes, but those are sort of just the basic modes that most transponders will have. And now, again, we're going to get to this, but there's been updates. If you've heard of an ADSB, those are now required. So most transponders are going to have an, an ADSB switch or your aircraft is going to have an additional unit and instrument for an ADSB that you'll have to switch on. And let's so let's just finish with just just the transponder stuff, the, the good old OG transponder stuff. So then you're going to have a screen and the screen's going to show your tail number on it. It's going to show your squat code. It's going to show a altitude, which is going to have usually I'll say like pressure altitude and I'll say flight level and then three digits. And so in terms of flight level and then it'll tell you your altitude, usually in terms of a flight level. And then it may have a indication like an on indication or a mode indication telling you what mode you're in on the screen. All right. So that is sort of the OG original transponder, the basic transponder. Now let's talk about ADSB. What is it and why is it required now? What does it do? So an ADSB can be considered a different mode of transponder. So it can be just considered an additional mode. We talked about the mode 3A and the mode C, and we'll get again, we'll get to those modes. So just think of it as a mode. And it's a new requirement by the FAA starting on January 1st, 2020. An ADSB out or transponder with altitude reporting modes, and that those are modes C or S, which again we'll get to these modes, so don't worry. But any mode that has altitude reporting modes, like ADSB, increases the capability of ATC's ability to see your aircraft and know pre precisely the position and altitude of your aircraft. So this makes traffic separating easier and flying safer. ADSB out broadcasts the aircraft's state vector. So what is a state vector? A state vector means the aircraft's three-dimensional position and velocity. So I want to say that again because this might be a question you get on the FAA written. What is ADSB out broadcast and why is it important? ADSB out broadcasts the aircraft's state vector. A state vector means that it gives a three-dimensional position and velocity. So without altitude, you just have a two-dimensional position. They just see your aircraft overlaid on top of a map. Then when you give them altitude, like in an ADSB, now you have a three-dimensional position. And it tells that and now ATC knows your exact three-dimensional position in space, because not only does it know where you're at above the ground on a map, but also how high above the ground you are. And then finally, it gives you gives them velocity, which completes the, the state vector information required of an ADSB. So instead of just reporting a latitude and an airspeed of 100 knots, the ADSB out reports a latitude, longitude, and altitude, again, three dimensions in space, as well as a horizontal ground speed, a vertical rate or vertical speed, true airspeed, and a heading, which allows for the calculation of the aircraft's speed in any single direction. So at any given time, 
the ADS-B out is reporting your speed in every direction so you know what speed you're traveling to the north, what speed you're traveling to the west, and what speed you're traveling up and down vertically changing altitudes. So it really is a complete picture of your aircraft moving in space and it allows ATC to really have a good site picture and really separate traffic at a much more efficient level. So it's much more safer and gives them much more information. ADS-B out can be built into new transponders or it can be provided in a separate standalone unit, which we talked about. They have some that even connect with your foreflight. All right, so we mentioned that ADS-B out is sort of just a different transponder mode. So let's go over the transponder modes. When you call up flight following our ATC, they will ask you to squawk a specific four digit code on your transponder. This is when you will change your transponder code from the VFR standard 1200 to the code assigned to you by ATC. Once you enter the code in your transponder, ATC will be able to locate the code or your aircraft on their screens and be able to provide radar, navigation, and traffic separation services. There are three modes of civilian transponders and another type of system called ADS-B out used in the United States, which we just talked about. Let's review each of those modes gives us. So mode, the first mode is mode A. Mode A transmits the aircraft position and a four digit squat code to ATC. The second mode is called mode C. Mode C transmits aircraft position, a four digit squat code to ATC like mode A, but it also transmits your aircraft's altitude rounded to the nearest 100 feet. Mode C transponders are sometimes referred to as encoding altimeter transponders because they report the altitude by encoding the altimeter value. So they take that whatever your altimeter value is and they encode it into the code that they send to ATC and then ATC has equipment that decodes it back out into an altitude. So they get your squat code, they get your position, and they get your altitude. Now, the third mode is called a mode S. Mode S is designed to function with traffic alert and collision avoidance systems, which are called TCAS. So if you have a fancy plane, then you, you might have a TCAS in it, which again helps you for traffic alert and collision avoidance, and traffic information systems, or a TIS or TIS. Mode S transmits your aircraft's call sign or transponder's permanent unit code position and altitude like a mode C. Mode S is another encoding altimeter transponder because it reports altitude by encoding the altimeter value. So again, mode S is like mode C, but it's able to function and broadcast to TCAS and TIS systems. ADS-B out, which we mentioned before, transmits aircraft position, identification, altitude, and velocity in every direction. So ADS-B out, so each mode, right? We started with mode A and it was just a position. We went to mode C and it gave us position and altitude. We went to mode S and it worked with TCAS. And then we went to ADS-B out and now we have aircraft position, altitude, and velocity in every single direction. So it's just another mode with more information given to ATC so they can better separate traffic and keep you safe. All right, let's talk about the requirements now because I mentioned that transponders are not always needed or required for your flight. And the same goes for ADS-B. So let's, let's list off what those requirements are. And these requirements you will need to know for your check ride as well as your FAA written exam. These are something I would definitely recommend. There's not a ton of questions about this on the FAA written, but I could see you getting one, maybe two. 
So the FAA requires aircraft to be equipped with an operable Mode C transponder and ADS-B out. So you need a Mode C and ADS-B out when any of these the following things. So you need those when you're within a class A alpha, class B Bravo, or class C Charlie airspace. So that's class A, B, C airspace. Whenever you're in those, you need mode C and ADS-B. Anytime you're above class Bravo or class Charlie airspace up until 10,000 feet MSL. So you're above a class Bravo or Charlie and you're below 10,000 feet, you need mode C and ADS-B. Anytime you're within class E airspace, at or above 10,000 feet MSL, except in that airspace below 2,500 feet AGL. Okay, so we're within class E airspace, above 10,000 feet MSL, but we don't, and that means we require mode C and ADS-B, but the one exception is if we are below 2,500 feet AGL. So when the heck would that happen? Well, if you're flying above a mountain, so your MSL, is 10,000 feet, but your AGL is less than 2,000 feet because the mountain, the mountainous area is right below you. If you're below 2,500 feet, then you're exempt from requiring mode C and ADS-B out. You have to be above class E airspace at or above 10,000 feet. And then again, the exception is below 2,500 feet AGL. Then within 30 nautical miles of a class Bravo airspace primary airport, Below 10,000 feet MSL, we call this a mode C veil. So class Bravo airspace, if you're within 30 nautical miles of the primary airport for that airspace and below 10,000 feet, that's called the mode C veil and you will require a mode C transponder and ADS-B out. Then into, within, or across the U.S. at ease, which is the air defense identification zone. So if you are inside of that you're crossing into it or you're crossing through it, then you'll require mode C transponder and ADS-B out. And then finally, we have a couple requirements that apply to ADS-B out only. So those are when you're within class E airspace over the Gulf of Mexico, at and above 3,000 feet MSL, and within 12 nautical miles of the U.S. coast, you require ADS-B out only, not mode C, just ADS-B out. Then, if your aircraft is equipped with operational ADS-B, then you are required to keep it in transmit mode at all times. So if you have operational ADS-B, but you're not in an area where it's required, but you have it and it's installed and it's operational, you have to keep it in transmit mode at all times. Then, for flights above Class A is airspace that's above 18,000 feet MSL, the aircraft is required to be equipped with a 1090 ES ADSB below 18,000 feet MSL. The ADSB can be either 1090 ES or Universal Access Receiver, a UAT ADSB. So we won't have to, as you as a private pilot, you're not going to have to worry about being above 18,000 feet in Class A airspace. So you're not allowed up there. So you don't have to worry about that last one. But let's just quickly review. You need Mode C and ADSB out when you're in. You're inside class A, B, or C airspace. You're above class B or C airspace up until 10,000 feet MSL. You're within class E airspace at or above 10,000 feet, except if you're below 2,500 feet AGL. You're within the, the mode C veil, which is 30 nautical miles from a class Bravo airspace primary airport and below 10,000 feet MSL. And then if you're going into, within, or across a US Addies, 
And then for ADS-B out only, you need it within Class E airspace over the Gulf of Mexico at and above 3,000 feet MSL and within 12 nautical miles of the U.S. coast. And then finally, if your aircraft is equipped with an operational ADS-B, then you're required to keep it in transmittent mode at all times, even if you are not in an area that it requires an ADS-B. Okay, so try and remember those. <laughs> Write those down and take some notes and get memorizing those. So in all those areas that we just talked about, the pilot must ensure that their transponder or ADS-B is operating on the appropriate VFR IFR code as assigned to them by ATC with altitude reporting enabled. So again, altitude reporting enabled, you have to have that enabled when you're in those areas and you have to be on the VFR IFR code that was assigned to you. If you think your transponder may be faulty, you'll want to contact the nearest tower, ATC or FSS to help with troubleshooting. And then finally, when not operating in an area that requires an encoding altimeter transponder, which is mode C, mode S, or ADS-B, the transponder should be set to mode A, no altitude reporting, unless otherwise advised by ATC. So I'm going to repeat that because this might be asked on your checkride or your FAA written. When not operating in an area that requires an encoding altimeter transponder, so you're in an area that does not require a mode C, mode S, or ADS-B, the transponder should be set to mode A, no altitude reporting. So you're not blasting altitude information unwanted to ATC unless otherwise advised by ATC. So the military has multiple kinds of transponders and the military type that corresponds to civilian mode A and civilian mode C is referred to as military mode three. You may see FAA questions that refer to mode 3A or mode 3C. The 3 is referring to military transponders. So for civilians like us, just know that this means mode A or mode C. And there's just a few more things I want to say about the transponders. I, I, I mentioned this before, but again, the ident feature on your transponder should only be engaged if you are instructed by ATC to do so. And the same goes for specific squat codes. So Code 1200 is a standard for VFR, so that's what you'll start with. And then when you contact ATC, they'll tell you to change it from the VFR standard. And it should be used unless you are in an emergency situation or ATC advises you to squawk a specific four-digit code. They will usually advise you to squawk a specific code when you contact flight following. When you are leaving airspace, which requires a transponder, and ATC advises that radar service is terminated, a pilot should set the code back to VFR standard code of 1200. So basically, keep it on 1200 until ATC has told you to change it and squawk something specific. And then if they say radar service terminated, they want you to set that back to 1200. Now, if you're following along in the online ground school, we have a nice, beautiful little picture of we have the ground, we have water, we have class B, class C, class E airspaces shown. We have a little plane with a transponder and it just visualizes all those requirements into one picture. It's a good visual visual aid for what we just talked about and kind of condenses all those requirements into one visual. So it's I really like the, the, the image and it's a very helpful image. So you can just kind of in one snapshot, see all those requirements instead of writing them all down or listening to them or whatever. And then finally, the last thing I want to talk about is emergency squat codes. The emergency squat codes are transponder squat codes like 1200, but that's the VFR one. But emergency squat codes and the type of emergency should be used 
So the last thing I want to talk about is the emergency squat codes. So there are squat codes that are designated only for emergencies. These should be avoided at all other times and when making routine transponder code changes. So if you're changing from, you know, one, two, zero, zero to some other number, I don't know, four, three, four, four or something like whatever ATC tells you, you want to make sure and be careful that you don't actually input one of these emergency squat codes because ATC is going to see them and they are going to think that you are under one of these emergencies. And each one of these, there's four of them, they mean something different. So 7500 is the hijacking code. So that tells ATC that you've been hijacked. 7600 is the lost radio communication code. So you've lost your radio comms and you want to tell ATC, so you squawk 7600. 7700 is the general emergency code. So that's just any any general emergency, squawk 7700. And then 7777 is the military interceptor code. So these four are what we want to avoid at all times and whenever we're making routine transponder code changes. Now, I have a video that shows that visual image that I was talking about. We walk through that visual image. We say all the requirements and we talk again a little bit about this with some visuals of how this stuff works. We even show that picture of the transponder instrument in your in your cockpit and label every single button and tell you what it does. I'll put that video in the show notes so you guys can watch that. And then if you're in the online ground school, again, you can see that video. You can see these visual aids that I talked about and you can take the quiz. Okay, so that's what that's everything I have for transponder and ADSB. Go ahead and review that because it is a lot of information. Watch that video in the show notes. Take the quiz if you're following wrong in the ground in the ground school. But it's been about 30 minutes. So let's move on. Let's get one more lesson in. This is lesson 10 of section two, and this is on the global positioning system or GPS. So the GPS is made up of 24 working satellites orbiting the Earth. And again, I'm going to repeat that. GPS is made up of 24 working satellites orbiting the Earth. You'll want to remember that for your FA written in checkride. The GPS architecture as a whole has three components. It has a space network of satellites that we just talked about, has a control station, and it has user systems like your aircraft with the GPS unit in it. The space network, again, consists of 24 operational satellites. The control station aspect consists of a series of ground control stations that are used to relay satellite signals. And the user system is the GPS in your aircraft or any device used by people with GPS capability, like the portable GPS that you can connect via Bluetooth to your iPad and ForeFlight. And with that said, when I say Bluetooth, connected to your iPad. I, I got to do a shout out to probably the best product I've ever bought as a pilot. It is the portable GPS. It's by Dual Electronics and it's just this little red GPS that you can put on the dashboard of your aircraft and it connects via Bluetooth to your iPad and connects through ForeFlight. So you have GPS with your ForeFlight if your aircraft does not have a GPS and the battery lasts forever. I've never had the battery die on me. And it sits in the baking hot sun on the dashboard in Cal Southern California, and it never has problems with the heat. It's just a really lightweight, durable, and relatively affordable product. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes as well for you guys. So if your aircraft doesn't have that, if you have an iPad, if you have ForeFlight, you got to get this GPS to make the best use of your iPad and ForeFlight. So with that said, let's get back to what I was talking about. So 
again, the user system, we had the, the space system of the 24 satellites. We had the control stations, which are a bunch of ground stations that relay the satellite signals. And then we have the user system, which is your GPS. In order to have reliable GPS information for your devices, you need to be able to receive a strong connection with at least five satellites. Why five? Because five satellites are required in order to yield a 3D position and time solution. Again, and what we're saying there is basically to know your position and velocity like an ADS-B out, to know that at all times. So position and time solution, you need five of those to be able to have a clear picture again, of your aircraft and where it's moving. And the other reason you need five is to be able to perform fault detection of a satellite reporting bad information. The use of 24 satellites ensures that at least five satellites are in view at the same time from almost any point on Earth. So there's a reason for all of this. There's a reason that you need five, again, so that you can get that 3D position in space, as well as that time solution and the velocity, so you can figure out your velocity and where you're traveling to. And then you can also have fault detection of a satellite reporting bad information. And then finally, we, the reason why we have 24 is that so they are uniquely positioned around the earth so that no matter where you are, you'll at least have five of them. So it's all there for a reason. And we have a picture diagram that shows this, that shows the satellites above earth and how they orbit the earth and how they can they can beam to a location on Earth and work that way. So if you're in the online ground school, go check that, that visual. It's possible for a GPS satellite to broadcast slightly incorrect information that can cause navigation information to be incorrect. For this reason, pilot GPS are accompanied by something called a Receiver Autonomous Integrity Monitoring System, or RAM, RAIM, I guess, R-A-I-M. Again, that's Receiver Autonomous Integrity Monitoring System. RAIM allows a pilot or user to determine the integrity of a satellite signal. This way, if the user suspects erroneous navigational information, they can check their RAIM system to see if the integrity of the satellites being used by their GPS is good or not. A pilot has no assurance of accuracy of GPS position when their Receiver Autonomous Integrity Monitoring or RAIM capability is lost in flight. Again, I'm gonna repeat that because this is a question on the FAA written. A pilot has zero insurance, no insurance, no assurance of accuracy of their GPS position when they lose RAIM. That is why it is important that you are able to check your RAIM for your GPS before and throughout a flight. And again, that's one of the reasons why I love that dual electronics GPS that I linked to in the show notes. It has an accompanying app that tells you the satellites you're connected to, the strength of the connection, and that RAIM. You can just pull up that app on your iPad, make sure that your GPS is good to go, and that you have that good RAIM connection, and then you're good to go to trust the position and velocity information that you're getting from your GPS. Okay, so if you're following along in the ground school, go ahead and take the GPS quiz, take that transponder quiz, and then that's it for today. I think that's enough. It's been close to 40 minutes, so we'll, we'll call it quits here. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week when we get to episode eight, and that'll be lesson 11 of the online ground school, which will be the fuel and oil system. That is probably a topic that'll take quite a bit. So we'll probably only do that. 
And then the next episode, we'll cover the aircraft engine and how these aircraft engine works and what parts of the aircraft engine you need to know as a pilot and understand how they work. All right, guys, I will talk to you next week. Thanks. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times. And then now after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations. If we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time, fly a plane for the first time. Everything's great and dandy. But once you get into, you know, bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight, things get a little more advanced. And when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts, you're going to hit a wall. You're going to start to get behind the aircraft. And when this happens, if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gained is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft, they start making mistakes, and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again. And they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family, they finally say, you know what, this has to stop. We can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress, you know, and they end up quitting. Now, so how do we avoid that? Well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. 
when I say modern day student pilot, I just say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic. Again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read, so for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices, have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos, or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on online ground school, and we'll see you inside the online ground school. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.